I would love for you to turn in your Bibles to Exodus chapter 20. That's in the left side of your Bible for those of you who only read the New Testament. Um, Exodus chapter 20. We're doing a series um, of 10 weeks on the Ten Commandments. And Pastor Jay last week preached on the, the first commandment, which you shall worship the Lord your God and him only. So that the commandment, there's one God, you worship no other God, the exclusive nature of God. And today we're going to be looking at the prohibition against idols, um, which is really more about how God is to be worshipped. Um, so who, who, God, who you worship, God and God alone. And today we're going to be looking at the prohibition against idols, which is how you worship. Scott McKnight, who's a New Testament scholar, um, does this experiment on his first day of, uh, of, of his class on Jesus, and he gives a standardized psychological test, and he does it in two parts. And I think this is kind of interesting. I've actually done this as a teacher myself. And the results, he says, are nothing short of astounding. The first part is about Jesus, and it asks students to imagine Jesus' personality with questions such as, does he prefer to go his own way rather than act by the rules? Or is he a worrier? Questions like that. And then the second part asks the exact same questions, but instead of does he prefer to go his own way or is he a worrier, asks are you a worrier or do you prefer to go your own way? So you, you take this two-part test. And what's astounding about it is this test is not about right or wrong answers. It's not even designed to help students understand Jesus. Instead, it is given to, if given to enough people, the test will reveal that we all think that Jesus is a lot like us. Isn't that interesting? And I doubt that's just college students. Introverts tend to think that Jesus is introverted, um, for example. And on the basis of the same questions, extroverts tend to think Jesus is extroverted. Spiritual formation experts would love to hear that students in this class are becoming more like Jesus. But I think what the test really reveals is the reverse Students are fashioning Jesus to be more like themselves. We imagine, reimagine Jesus in our own image, that Jesus is like us. So rather than reshaping ourselves and trying to conform ourselves to the image of Christ, what we often do is reimagine Christ in our own image. And if this test was given to a random sample of adults, the results would be measurably similar to one degree or another. We all conform Jesus to our own image. Voltaire, not a friend of Christians. He was a French philosopher, very much opposed to Christianity as a critique to Christianity. But I think he's somewhat right in, in, a, in a very unfortunate way. Once said that God made man in his own image. And ever since, man has been returning the favor. I think that's really true. I think when we look at God, rather than trying to see who God is and who we need to be, we reimagine God to be very much like ourselves, don't we? And that's really a dangerous thing. And ultimately, I think that's what's at the heart of idolatry, is that idolatry is fashioning a God in our own imagination, a God that's very much more like ourselves, Idolatry lowers God to be more like us. We were made to image God, to be like him. But there are ways that God is far beyond us. And actually, in every way, God is far beyond us. And what we do when we are idolaters is we bring God back down to our level. And that's what the heart of idolatry is. The Ten Commandments, although they were given to the nation of Israel, I, I believe they are still relevant to us today. As Pastor Jay pointed out last week, there are three categories of the Old Testament law. There's the civil law, the ceremonial law, and the moral law. 
the civil laws are the laws that govern the nation of Israel, just like we have laws that govern our nation. Um, the ceremonial laws are the laws that govern the rituals, the festivals, and the sacrifices at the center of Israel's, Israel's worship, and they all point to Christ. They all foreshadow Christ in some way. And the moral law reveals God's moral standards. And the Ten Commandments belong to the moral law, which is universal and still in force for us today. We live in an age of moral relativism. We live in an age where people imagine that we determine right and wrong for ourselves. That it's the individual who says, well, this is right for me and this is right, this is wrong for me, but you do right and wrong for yourself. We live in this kind of age or maybe as a society that this is right in this time and place or this is right in this situation. We live in an age of moral relativism. But as Christians, we believe differently. We believe in absolute moral standards. God is the moral standard. God is not a God of one nation. God is not a God of one people. God is not a God of one time or one place. God is God universally. He is God in the past. He is God now. He will be God forever. God is God here. God is God 3,000 miles away from here. God is God on the other side of the, of the universe and the other side of the planet. We, we worship God who is universal, and the moral standards that he reveals to us are universal. They're not situational. They're not... Um, not relative, they're absolute. God is the moral standard. He reveals moral standards for us and will be measured according to his standards and not according to ours. Another way to see the Old Testament law, and I think this is helpful as you look at the Ten Commandments, is maybe in three circles that, that get a little bit bigger or smaller, depending which way you go. The center of the Old Testament law are the two greatest commandments, and Jesus reaffirms this. First, love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. This is the greatest commandment. And the second is love your neighbor as yourself. So this is the center of the law. All of the law, in some sense, has to do with loving God or loving your neighbor. And the Ten Commandments is, is an expansion of those two. The first four laws focus on what it means to love God, what that looks like. And the last six commandments expand on loving your neighbor, what it means to love your neighbor and what that looks like. So the, the Ten Commandments are really an expansion of those two. And then the 613 other commandments really grow out of the Ten Commandments, giving more explanation of what that looks like. And some of those are, are more for the nation of Israel. Some of them reflect what it was like in an agrarian society. Some of them are relative, you know, very relevant to us and some of them less so, but all of those are kind of an expansion of the 10 commandments, which are an expansion of the two greatest commandments, if that makes sense. So the rest of the old Testament expands on the 10, but however you look at them, the 10 commandments are not just rules from a really long time ago. They reveal God's heart and they're essential to a Christian ethic, how we ought to live, what it means to be a Christian. They tell us what it looks like to love God. They tell us what it looks like to love our neighbor. And nine out of the ten are explicitly reaffirmed in the, the New Testament. To be a Christian means to be somebody who loves God. And to be a Christian means to be somebody who loves your neighbor. You can't be a Christian. You can't live as a Christian. You can't live Christianly without following those two ethics, loving God, loving your neighbor. But these commandments tell us how to do this and show us what this looks like. Another important reminder, and I know Pastor Jay said this last week, but this is so, so, so important, and I need to reinforce this. Um, that although the Ten Commandments are still in force for us today, and I believe they're still relevant, I believe they show us how we ought to live, I believe we ought to conform our lives to them, it is important to remember that we do not and we cannot earn our salvation through following them. That is so, so, so important. We are saved by grace through faith, not by the works of the law. Morality is important. 
God wants us to be moral. God wants us to conform to his moral standards. So don't hear me wrong in that, but you cannot be saved through your own morality. You cannot be saved through your own good works. You cannot be saved through following the 10 commandments. And I think there are a lot of people today who imagine that if I follow the 10 commandments, I'm basically a good person, then I'm good. And friends, let me tell you, that's not true. The only way for you to be righteous in God's eyes is through Jesus Christ. The only person who was able to keep God's law perfectly was Christ who died for our sin, whom God raised from the dead. And we become righteous on the basis of his merit, not our own. So these commandments are good. You should strive to live your life by them, but do not imagine that you will be able to achieve righteousness through them. That actually, and we'll get back to, to why I say this, that's actually a form of idolatry in itself is if you seek to be righteous through the 10 commandments, you're actually breaking them. The only way to achieve righteousness is through the work of Christ, through God's grace. So those reminders, I think those are important for us to remember. Um, let us look into today's text. I'm in Exodus chapter 20. I'm going to be reading verses 4 through 6. The, the Ten Commandments are God's commands. They reveal his moral standards to us. The first commandment was that we worship God and him alone. Today we'll examine the second commandment, that we worship God in his way, not ours. So Exodus chapter 20, verses 4 through 6. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or on the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord, your God am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers and the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. Let us pray, and then we'll um, look into God's word a little bit more. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you that you have revealed yourself to us through it, that we know, um, we know the God who created the universe. We know the God that created us. We know the God who, has, who sets moral standards. We know that you are a holy God. We know that you are a righteous God. We know that you are a powerful God. We also know that you are a good and loving God. And we're so thankful for that. Father, I pray that as we look into your word this morning, that we will be reminded of your holiness and we will be reminded of the need to approach you as you have told us to approach you. Um, Father, I pray that you will um, keep us from uh, lowering you into an image that we have made of making gods for ourselves that are not God. Protect us from our own folly and our own silliness in this regard. Father, I thank you for your word. Once again, I pray that your spirit will will work in us this morning as we listen to it, as we think about it, as we ponder it, as we meditate on it. I pray that you will um, remind us that our salvation is not in ourselves, that although these laws are good and we want to follow them, that our righteousness is in in the, the person of Jesus Christ. And we pray in his name and by your spirit. Amen. So the first commandment commands that Israel worship no other gods. And this is based in the fundamental theological truth that there is only one God. He alone is God. There is no other God. There is no other God, and he alone is to be worshipped. Now, interestingly, um, some traditions, Catholics and Lutherans, they actually take the first and the second commandment, and they combine them. So the first and second commandment, um, you shall worship no other gods, and you shall make no graven images, they regard as one, and then they separate Thou shalt not covet into two. You shall not covet your neighbor, your neighbor's wife, and you shall not covet your neighbor's possessions. So they, they, that's how they, there's two different ways of looking at the Ten Commandments. 
Um, I think we're right, and I, I have reasons for believing that. The second commandment is not the same as the first. So the first commandment is you will worship no other gods. And the second is you will make no graven images. And the second is builds on the first and is related to it, but it's also distinct. The first commandment focuses on who we should worship, God and God alone. The second is focused on how we should worship. The first commandment prohibits the worship of false gods. The second commandment prohibits the making of images of God for the purpose of worship. And both, both of them are based in theology. The first is based in the singularity of God. The second is based in the nature of God. God is infinite. He cannot be represented in finite form. He cannot be represented by objects, by creation. So God is God alone, and God is an infinite God. He is not created. He is not made. He, is not, he doesn't have boundaries. And idolatry tries to bring God down to the point where we can understand him better, and that sounds good sometimes, but what we do in doing that is limit God. We make him smaller than he really is because we make him into an image that, that we, would, we would rather have. Um, the, first, the first is the singularity of God. The second is the nature of God. God is an infinite spirit outside the realm of creation. That's the basis of the second commandment. In your, if you're following along in your notes, the second commandment, absolutely prohibits the creation of images for the purpose of worship or representing God in physical form. The second commandment absolutely prohibits the creation of images for the purpose of worship or for representing God in physical form. God cannot be represented in the form of an animal, of a human, or any other created thing. Doing so dishonors God. He brings him down to the status of a creature. The text here prohibits the creating of a likeness of anything in heaven or the earth or the sea. And if you can remember the days of creation, that, that's supposed to relate to that. So days one, two, and three, you have God creating light and darkness, and you have God um, separating out the, the oceans or the, the oceans from the sky, and then day three, the land from the sea, and then days four, five, and six, he populates those three realms. He, he puts the stars and the sun and the moon in, in the sky, and he puts the animal, the fish and the birds in the, in the air and in the the oceans, and he puts uh, animals and humans on the land. So you have these three realms, and that corresponds to you will not make images of anything in the heavens or in the sea or on the land. So basically, you will not make any images that represent God from anywhere. That's, that's the point of these three different realms is to include all of creation. This commandment's kind of interesting. It's the longest of the ten. So this is the longest of the ten commandments because God gives both an explanation and he tells the results of breaking this commandment. Why should Israel not break this commandment? Because God is a jealous God. And back, if you're following along in your notes, breaking this commandment invokes God's jealousy and has serious repercussions because the sins of the fathers become the sins of the sons. Now, often when people hear that God is jealous, they're troubled by this a little bit. This, this sounds... This sounds like something that God should not be, or this sounds like something that God would not be, is not worthy of God to be, to be jealous. Isn't jealousy bad? Are we not to be jealous? Or even sometimes critics will say that jealousy implies that God is in some sense insecure. He, uh, he needs people to worship him. Why would, why would he be jealous of people worshiping false gods if he's so strong and he's so great? It's kind of, maybe people imagine it, it 
indicates some insecurity in God, that he needs people to worship him, and he needs their, their worship to feel good about, him, about himself or something. And that's a misunderstanding. God's jealousy is not like our jealousy. When we are jealous, we want what belongs to another, or we're concerned with how we measure up to a rival. So we're jealous because we want something in sense of envy, or we're jealous because we're worrying about how we measure up to a rival. But God, jealous for his glory and his worship, has no rival. Remember the first commandment. There is no other God. God is not jealous of any rivals. There are no rivals. There's no one on God's level. God is, as a creator of all things, has the right to all of the glory and all of the worship. God is jealous for his name and his reputation because he is worthy of all glory and all honor that is due his name. All creation, including human beings, were created to bring glory to God, and God is right to be jealous because he alone is worthy of worship. He's right to be jealous because he alone is worthy of worship. When others are worshipped, other people, other things, um, other beings are worshipped instead of God, God is jealous. When God's name is degraded and dishonored by the flippancy with which we speak of it, God is jealous. When God's nature is misrepresented by the gods that we invent as human beings, God is jealous. When we say things about God that are not true, when we misrepresent who God is, God is jealous and God has a right to be. God's jealousy for his glory is a jealousy for what is rightfully his. And this isn't something that's bad for us. And it's the, the purpose of God's jealousy isn't just for our own sake. But we were made to worship God. We were made to worship God. We were made to bring him honor and him glory. We're also degrading ourselves when we don't worship him. And I'll get into that a little bit later. Exodus here says, and this is another question that might seem a little difficult at first glance. But Exodus says that God will visit the iniquities of the fathers on the children of the third and fourth generation. And those who hate him. This does not mean that God punishes children for their father's sins. Actually, in the law in Deuteronomy, it says the opposite. That God does not punish children for their father's sins. It says the same thing in Ezekiel. What's going on here is that when fathers or parents fall into idolatry, when they have false gods, false images of God, false ideas of who God is, more often than not, they pass that on to the next generation, and it passes on to the next generation, and passes on to the next generation. And this is a story that we see so often in the Old Testament. And what God is saying here, I will punish the sins of the fathers, and the sins of their sons, and their sons, and their sons, and their sons, on and on and on, as long as the this, this sin of idolatry, the sin of misrepresenting who God is, is continued. So it's this, this continual punishment as the sin as this false view of God is passed on from generation to generation to generation. The word hate here should probably be understood in its context. It says of those who hate him as disloyalty, as it's contrasted in the text with God's covenant loyalty for those who are faithful to him. So for those who are disloyal to God by creating images, by creating idols, by misrepresenting who God is, by creating false gods for themselves, <coughs> God will punish them. Um, and those who are faithful, God will be faithful too. And this verse should really be sobering um, for those of us who are parents, who are grandparents, for those of us who will work in day camp. I think it's amazing and awesome. We have, Pastor Jay said, somewhere between 90 and 100 volunteers for day camp of a church of 300 and something. That is astounding. And that's awesome. But that means that 
all of us need to be hearing this, that what we say to younger people, what we say to children about God, how we represent God is very, very heavy. It's important that the image that we give of God to our children likely will be passed on to their children. This is an image that it echoes and we we can grossly misrepresent God with how we speak of God and how we talk of God. When we misrepresent God to our children, they have a wrong idea of who God is. It's our responsibility to help our children understand who God is and understand him rightly and correctly. And we see this happening throughout the whole Old Testament. It comes to idolatry. One generation would erect an idol. I think of Gideon, he erects this ephod. And the next generation of people, they worship it and they fall into idolatry. And we see this throughout the Old Testament. The whole book of Kings, you see kings who either allow idolatry to continue. They don't root out the high places. They sin in some way. And the next generation, the next generation, the next generation, they fall into that sin. Because they did not stand up and they did not root it out and they allowed it to echo for generations to come. Later on in the law, Deuteronomy chapter 6, and I think this is the antidote to this. So on one hand, idolatry, you sin by committing idolatry, you create images for yourself, you misrepresent who God is, and this echoes for generations to come. But in Deuteronomy 6, God commands the Israelites, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart and you shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house and when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise, you shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. So you shall continually speak of God and his commandments. You shall teach your children to love God. And this is, this is our duty, not just as parents and grandparents, but anyone who has influence over children, whether you're a teacher or you teach in the in children's church, or you're going to be involved in day camp, how you speak of God is going to form and impact how children, how those younger than you understand who God is. This is a sobering and serious responsibility. We'll talk about what idolatry looks like in our context today in a few minutes, but the point here is is the utmost importance of how we represent God to those who are coming behind us. Do we speak of God as he is, or do we misrepresent him and speak of him as he is not? So the second commandment forbids idolatry, but what exactly is idolatry? What did idolatry look like in the ancient world? One, one command, common misunderstanding about idolatry is that people worshiping idols believe that the idol was actually a God. And this isn't true. They didn't see the idol as actually a God. They believed it was a representation of a God, sometimes indwelled by a God, but that this idol served as something of a conduit between our world and the divine world. That was almost, uh, it's, it's the wrong word to use, but almost like a magical object that allowed you to speak into the divine realm and actually gave you power over the gods, which we'll see in a minute. In the world of the Old Testament, back in your notes here, in the world of the Old Testament, idolatry was part of an elaborate system to manipulate pagan gods into giving you what you wanted or needed. Although they did not believe that the carved idol was the god it represented, they believed that it served as a means to control the god represented. So the ancients believed that gods could do virtually anything except feed themselves. And, and this may seem really silly, but they, you, could, you would actually have feasts 
with the gods. They would have set up idols and you, you would have this feast and you would eat with the gods. You would set out food for the gods. Sometimes there were elaborate things that the priests did to make the food disappear. So you think that somehow the gods ate. But the idea is that the gods need you in some sense. They need your sacrifices. That without your sacrifices, that they're, they're lacking. And so there's this two-way street. You give the gods what they want and they give you what you want. And so you now have some kind of a power over the gods. Do you see how that's somewhat attractive? Um, If you fed a god adequately and regularly, the god was obligated to bless you with crops and herds and children. By making an idol, you established a link to the divine realm and could be sure that the god heard you. By offering sacrifices, you could be sure that the god would bless you. Worship of idols was also accompanied with feasting, drinking, sexual promiscuity, sensual pleasures that many in the ancient world found appealing for the very same reasons that people today find such activities appealing and desirable. So there's a lot about idolatry that appealed to the senses. They appealed to your your base desires, and they gave you some sense of control. With this in mind, compare that to the worship of Yahweh. Compare that to the worship of the one true God. I, I love, and I repeat this so many times, I might be driving you crazy already, but I love C.S. C.S. Lewis's image of God, at Aslan, in, in the Chronicles of Narnia, as not a tame lion. Meaning, you, you can't control him. You don't get to tell God what, who he is, and what he can do, and what he must do. God isn't tame. God is not beholden to us. So you can see you have, you can worship gods who you believe you can control in some sense, and you can guarantee to get the things that you want and you can manipulate them or a God that cannot be controlled and cannot be manipulated. A God who's absolutely sovereign, or you can steal some sovereignty back for yourself and you can be in control. You might see why people might want a more user-friendly God. And that's basically what idolatry offers. It's a God that that is a little bit easier to use and and know how to manipulate. Idolatry was attractive because it put humans in the driver's seat and offered worshipers prosperity, power, prestige, promiscuity. And although idolatry may seem foreign to our context at first glance, things are really not that different today. They really are not that different today. If you look around at, at the Christian world today, sadly, you'll see much of the same. There's many people who preach that if you do A... God will do B. That if you do these things, if you pray in this way, if you pray according to this formula, if you give money in the offering plate, if you do these lists of things, then God will bless you. If you're a basically good person, then God will bless you and give you the things that you want and give you your heart's desires. This makes God beholden to us. This, this inverts the relationship. We may not make physical idols for ourselves. Some people do around the world, but we still do commit idolatry because we put God in a box. We lower him to the point where he's more manageable. And by doing so, we've created an idol. We have remade God in an image in, in a way that he really is not. So if we worship God, believing that he will bless you, we believe that God is somehow obligated to us. We are committing idolatry. There's a quote I love from Augustine, who this is in the days when Rome was being, was threatened to fall. So Rome was, had converted to Christianity in some sense, and it looked, at, Rome was in its last legs. It was, it was falling apart. And many Christians were asking, you know, how could God allow, allow things to fall apart and to crumble? How could God allow this, this empire to, to crumble? 
And why would God allow that? And Augustine, he wrote City of God to kind of answer that question. This is big, long work that um, all of us should read someday, but probably won't. Um, <laughs> it's been on my reading list for decades. But anyway, the, um, in it, he says, he contrasts pagan worship and Christian worship. And he says the pagans worship gods because of what they can do for them. They worship gods because of what they can do for them. But we worship God because of who he is. We worship God because of who he is. And that's the difference between pagan idolatrous worship and Christian worship. We don't worship God because we can get something out of him. We worship God because of who he is. And that's such an important foundational difference. But that's the, that's the pull of idolatry is a God that you can control a God that's in a box, the God that's manageable, a God that you can get what you want out of. And that's the idea. So worshiping God, the right God, using the right name for God, is not enough to avoid idolatry. If you remake God into your own image or into an image that is less threatening or is in more in alignment with yourself and your own values, you're committing idolatry. If you worship God's God in ways contrary to how he has commanded us to worship, you are committing idolatry. God alone must be worshiped and he must be worshiped in the right way. When we worship God in ways that are not honoring who he is, I mean, your blank, your notes again. When you worship God in ways that are not honoring who he is, we are committing idolatry. So yes, idolatry is bad. And idolatry is, is creating a God in our own image or creating a God in an image of which he is not. Why is idolatry such a big deal? Well, first, idolatry distorts our view of God. Idolatry distorts our view of God. When we make an idol of God, we are implying that God is finite rather than infinite. We are saying that God has limits, that God has this place where he starts and a place where he ends, that God is in somehow manageable. And when we create an idol of God, when we create an image of God, we have some control over him. So we're, we're lowering God. We're degrading God. We're bringing him down to our level. There's also a link between idolatry and sexuality. And if you look at pagan religions, you'll see this. Idolatrous religions unfailingly imagine their God as being like us as a sexual being. And if you read through Kings, you see a close association with idolatry, cult prostitutes, and a lot of sexual perversions. And there's a reason, because if you see your God as being like us in that way, then that becomes a part of your, your worship in a very perverse sort of way. So prostitution and gross immoral acts were important aspects of pagan worship. And this is something that we ought not to imagine God as being like us in that way. So we are created in God's image, but the idolater, rather than imaging God, creates God in his own image, makes God like a man. Instead of submitting to God's will, he imagines God as someone whom he can control and manipulate. Idolatry inverts the natural and proper relationship between God and humans. It inverts the natural and proper relationship between God and, God and humans. Idolatry makes God subject to human wants, needs, and desires. And we imagine quite stupidly. And the more you think about this, the stupider it is. We imagine quite stupidly that God exists for our benefit. That the God who created the heavens and the earth, the God who created for us, that he exists for us. It doesn't make any sense, but that's really what we do in idolatry. So idolatry distorts our view of God, but idolatry also distorts our view of ourselves. When we create our own God or gods, we see ourselves as creators of God rather than created by him. But idolatry is also degrading. 
It's also degrading. It's, it's a sin against the image of God in ourselves. God created human beings to rule over creation. Being a human is not a, 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 a shameful thing. Being human is a glorious thing. We're the greatest thing God created. He set us over creation to rule over creation. But what we do, what the idolatry does in his idolatry is he worships creation. So the thing that he's set to rule over, he worships. So the idolatry worships creation, dishonoring God and degrading himself in the process. So remember Adam and Eve in the garden. And if you remember Adam and Eve in the garden, Genesis chapter three, uh, Eve is tempted by Satan to, to eat of the fruit because she will be like God. So this is temptation that if you do what God has told you not to do, you will be like God knowing good from evil. And so she, when she eats from the, the tree, she sees it's desirable for wisdom. She desires to be like God in a way not given to her. And so she reaches too high. So we're in the image of God. We're to be like God. This is a glorious thing. This is a great thing. But she reaches too high. And Adam reaches too high in being like God and taking something for themselves that belongs to God. And that is God's right to tell us what is right and what is wrong. And Eve says, no, I know better for myself than you do. And so she, she sets herself above God. But there's also another side to it that isn't as often emphasized. And that is in Genesis chapter 2. God sets Adam and Eve as rulers over creation to rule over the beasts of the field field. And then it says the snake most cunning of the beasts of the field tempted Eve. And what is, what does Eve do? What, what do Adam and Eve do in their sin? They submit themselves to the beasts of the field. They submit themselves to creation. You see, we were, we were created to rule over creation. But what the idolater does is worships creation. So he sets himself above God, but he sets himself below the animals. He sets himself below the images that he has made that represents God. So, so idolatry is degrading to God, but it's also degrading to ourselves. We put ourselves below what we ought to rule over. Isn't that interesting? In, in India... And this is true. It doesn't sound true, but it's true. There is a temple in India, a Hindu temple, that's dedicated to rats. Where there are hundreds of thousands of rats. And people go to this temple and they worship the rats. They believe that they're their, their ancestors. They pray to them. They worship them. Um, they, they lift them up on high. And that is degrading to human beings. To worship rats. And we can all see that. But anytime we worship something of our own making, whether that be our career or money or pleasure or any other thing, we are worshiping something we're supposed to rule over. We're degrading ourselves. Idolatry is degrading to us. It's dishonoring to God, but it's also degrading to ourselves. We are created to be in the image of God and rule over creation, but instead we serve creation. This is the inversion of the natural order. Idolatry is reaching too high and stooping too low. When we remake God to suit our needs, we place ourselves in authority over him. When we worship something created, we worship something that we were made to rule over. So idolatry distorts our view of God and idolatry distorts our view of ourselves. And thirdly, idolatry captures our hearts and our loves. To steal the title from a book by G.K. Beale, we become what we worship. We become what we worship. What we love most and hold as ultimate 
will have a profound impact on the person that we are becoming. If your God that you have made for yourself is most concerned that you be happy. If the God that you have made for yourself is most concerned that you be happy, you will justify your own happiness as the ultimate good. If your God most wants you to be prosperous and rich and wealthy, your wealth will be justified as the ultimate goal. If your God exists for your benefit, you will see the rest of the world as existing for your benefit. You will become a self-centered person because you worship a God that is you-centered. So what you worship has a profound impact on the person that you are becoming. The struggle against idolatry is a struggle for your soul. The struggle against idolatry is a struggle for your soul. Who are you going to be? Who are you becoming? It's a very real struggle. Moving into the section on responding to God's word. What does idolatry look like today? Well, return with me to the test that we, that we had that given by Scott McKnight. And I, I wonder if we were to examine ourselves, how much do we really look like God? And how much have we reimagined God to look like us? I'm sure that we would justify many of the views that we have, many of our preferences and our convictions and our practices as rep- representing and reflecting God's views, God's preferences, God's convictions. But we must be careful that we don't have it the wrong way around. Joshua, on his, uh, right before he, he began the invasion of Canaan, he, he goes out preparing for the, for the battle. And he comes across somebody with a sword and he asks him, or whose side are you on? Are you on our side or on their side? And, and the person that he sees is the angel of Yahweh. It's, it's, it's God. And that's the wrong question. <laughs> whose side are you on is the wrong question to ask God. It's whose side are you on? Right? And Joshua asks, is, asks, is imagining God as, as being on his side. Is imagining God as a God who, who fits us rather than aligning ourselves to, to God's will and to reshape ourselves according to the image of Christ. It's the wrong question. It's the wrong question. And we do the same thing when we remake God in our own image. We live in a world full of idols and false ideas of who God is. Many worship gods. Many worship God because of what he can do for us rather than because of who he is. And anytime we remake God into something other than who he really is, we have made for ourselves an idol. We, we were made in God's image, but we dare not, we dare not remake God in ours. The dangers of idolatry highlights the importance of sound theology. It matters that we think correctly about God. It matters that we sing correctly about God. It matters that we pray correctly about God. And we worship God correctly. And we cannot worship God if we don't know who he is. And this is why studying Scripture, this is why coming together um, on Sundays and, and hearing God's word preached, this is why being in the word together, this is why thinking deeply together about who God is, is so, so, so important. Uh, this is why your, your work, again, a hundred of us or so are working in day camp. That's why that work is so important, because you need to speak truth about who God is to those who are younger, those who are impressionable. You are shaping their image and their idea of who God is. This is so, so, so important. I also really appreciate what Pastor Jay said last week in encouraging the opposite, because in the, the commandments, when they says, thou shalt not, 
it's also encouraging the opposite of the shalt not. So when you, when it says you shall not have any other gods before me, you shall have me as your God. And here the opposite of idolatry is correct worship. The opposite of idolatry is worshiping God. And I think we should take this commandment as, as an invocation to bring us to worship. We are made to be worshipers. We live in a world that's full of self-worship, possession, possession worship, celebrity worship, but we worship God and God alone. And worshiping God correctly is going to take practice. And I want to bring one practice to light here in, in terms of prayer. So often... What I see in, in prayer, and I see this in myself too, so this is an us thing, not a all y'all thing, and I have it right, um, is that we, we actually really do approach God as a God that exists for us. We ask God, can, can you do this and this and this and this and this? We have this list of things that we want God to do. And let, let me tell you, because I don't want, you, don't want you to hear me wrong. It is good to come to God with your requests. We're, we're told to do that. And doing that correctly actually helps shape us to be dependent upon God. It helps us to recognize that we need God and that he is our provider, that we don't provide for ourselves and that we're dependent upon him. So that's good. But if we only see God in that light, if we only pray to God for the sake of what we gain or what we get, we're going to have a consumeristic view of God, that God exists so that he can provide for us. God exists so that he can give us things. And this will shape our view of God. And that can be idolatry. That can be idolatry. If you see God as existing for your own benefit, if the reason that you pray is, is purely for your own benefit, your own gain, your own blessing, you have a wrong view of God. We ought to also worship God in prayer to remember God's goodness, God's greatness, God's holiness in prayer. We also ought to submit our wills to God in prayer. These are all important aspects of prayer, not just one aspect, not just praying. So praying for provision. So we ought to take stock of ourselves. Have we tamed God in some sense by remaking him into our own image? Have we imagined that God exists for our purposes or do we exist for him? The last thing I want to bring back to light, and I mentioned this at the beginning, is it's important as we, as we preach, as we think through the Ten Commandments, to, to remember the gospel. Because if we imagine that following the Ten Commandments, if we imagine that by doing works of righteousness, that we can achieve righteousness, that's actually idolatry. We make ourselves into our own savior. We make ourselves into our own provider. We imagine that salvation is something that we win for ourselves. But the gospel reminds us that we don't bring anything to the table. That God saves us purely out of his grace and his mercy and his love. And not because of what we do. Not because we've earned it. So Jerry Bridges, a popular author who, who died maybe 10 years ago or something. He, he used to say, and Pastor Jay mentioned him a couple weeks ago. He used to say that you need to preach the gospel to yourself every day. And preaching the gospel to yourself, remembering that you are saved by God's grace and not by your own works, is a reminder of who God is. And it's a correct view of God. It's a God who loves. A wrong view of God is a God who's sitting there with a ledger of your good deeds and your bad deeds and weighing it out and seeing if you measure up. That's a wrong view of God. That's an idolatrous view of God. A view of God that says, I save myself in some sense, is a wrong view of yourself. So the gospel is an antidote to idolatry. So the obvious, so the, the obvious implication of this is if we imagine that the Ten Commandments earns our salvation, 
We're violating the Ten Commandments. We are saved by God's grace. And I think especially as we examine the law, we need to remember that so that we don't make God into somebody he is not. Um, Please stand with me. And I'll dismiss you as we pray. Father, thank you again for your word. Thank you for the the truth um, that is revealed to us in it. Thank you that you have um, sent your son to reveal who you are to us, that you are not a God of law, but that you are a God of love and grace and mercy and forgiveness, that you are a God um, who gives us righteousness through Christ. Thank you for that. Thank you for the gospel. Thank you for sending your son to die for us. And thank you for raising him again from the, from the grave so that we can have new life. Father, we are totally dependent upon you. Father, we do not want to worship you in a way that dishonors you. We do not want to make false gods for ourselves. We do not want to pass on a false view of God to our children. Help us, we pray. We pray that your spirit will be at work in our hearts and our lives and that you will guide our words in the way that we speak about you. And we pray in your son's name and by the spirit. Amen.